Well, dear friends, our text this morning as we hear from the living God and His Word is 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 to 39, but also taking in from a couple chapters earlier, chapter 21, verses 15 to 22. There are no bonus points for reading exceptionally hard texts, but if there were, Ron would get full points for it. Thank you for the reading. And from just having heard those texts read this morning, you already sense we're dealing with something quite specific here. Because what we're considering this morning are two warrior lists, if you will. And we're working with them together because, as you know, if you've been here the last few weeks or listened to the sermons, this double list is what forms the intermediate ring of the Samuel Conclusions structure. Now, over the last two weeks, we considered the poetic core of the conclusion, the Psalm of David that's in chapter 22, and then the prophecy of David that's in chapter 23, verses 1 to 7. That's the core of the, of the four chapters that conclude Samuel. As you move out from that core, the two passages that we're looking at today are what frame David's psalm and prophecy. So that as we study these this morning, we're not only concerned with the many, many details in these lists, but also why they're here. In other words, what's the point of including these if you're the author-editor of Samuel, right? Why use these lists now to frame that central text of your conclusion? How do these perhaps reinforce what we've seen over the last two Sundays. Those are the kinds of things I want to address. And I know that reading texts like this likely fail to sweep you up into a sense of devotional rapture. But my commitment in this context is to preach through all of the text of the books that we're studying at Christ the King. So let's try and work through this together this morning and see uh, what it is that the Lord has to say. The sermon will have two sections, I guess you could say. Section one is intended to address a few specific questions that likely emerge from these passages. There are some details here that probably seem odd, seem puzzling, and I want you to have some sense of what to do with a few of those. So that'll be section one of the sermon. And then quite different will be section two, where I want to try to get at the larger issue I posed a moment ago. Why are these texts here? What is the point of them? or perhaps the point of them. And, and to get at that, I'll consider what these have to say about David and about the Lord and about the kingdom. So that's where we're headed ultimately in section two. And it's, it's a slightly more disjointed sermon than average, but it's not exactly your average text either that we're dealing with. So let me begin now by taking a few taking on a few questions that could emerge from these passages in section one of the sermon. Because there's a number of challenging details here. You can read page after page after page of technical wrestling with the Hebrew. And there are some things we just don't know for sure from these texts. So that I'm not by any stretch addressing all the issues that are here. But I do have three questions that I think may 
may first occur to you as readers of these texts that I want to try briefly to answer. So, three questions. Question one, were there really giants? Right? Were there really giants? I mean, isn't that something you ask after reading chapter 21, verses 15 to 22? Four times you find it there. This is the list, that, that section in chapter 21. It's a list of four instances of war in which each time an Israelite warrior kills a Philistine giant, it says. So verse 16, Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, thought to kill David. Abishai comes to David's aid. And then take verse 18. Sibachai the Hushathite struck down Saf, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And then the summary of the whole thing is in verse 22. These four, meaning the four Philistines mentioned here, these four were descended from the giants in Gath. And they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So what's the explanation for this? Or at least the explanation that I think is best. Well, the Hebrew word translated giants in this text is the word Rapha. These four were descended from the Rapha. And many scholars suggest that Rapha may actually be a proper name that refers to either the real or even the supposed ancestor of these warriors, which would then likely connect them to a group that in the Bible is called the Rephaim. And the Rephaim were people who lived primarily east but also west of the Jordan in pre-conquest times, before Israel comes into the land of Canaan. And the Rephaim are mentioned as early as Genesis chapter 14. There are then a few references to them in Deuteronomy chapter 2, which is a chapter that's about Moses and the people in the wilderness, east of the Jordan, and so on, if you want to look at, at that later. Joshua then mentions the Rephaim as well in Joshua chapter 17, verse 15. A couple times in Samuel, we've had reference to the valley of the Rephaim, so that they're around in the Old Testament, the Rephaim. And in the Deuteronomy chapter 2 text in particular, if you go look at that later on, you'll find there references to how these Rephaim were known to be exceptionally tall. So Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 20 says, Rephaim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim, who evidently were another race of very tall people in the ancient world. So that in 2 Samuel 21, what we have probably are four Rephaim, specifically four who are from a group that were descendants of Rapha. They're serving with the Philistines. Probably they've just become part of the Philistine nation at this point. And yes, they were exceptionally tall people. Or if you like, giants. Some scholars suggest, this is interesting, some scholars suggest that these four giant figures here are mentioned because maybe they were the last of their lineage. I don't know that we can be sure about that, but it is the last time, as far as I can find, that any descendants or members of the Rephaim come up in the Bible, other than reference to geographical areas where they used to be. 
And that's significant partly because the Rephaim were included in God's ancient promise to Abraham. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, so that maybe in this strange-sounding list in chapter 21 that includes these four giants, well, maybe we're not so far away from the fulfillment of God's promises after all. All right. Next question. Question number two. Uh, who exactly was it that killed Goliath? Which I would think is a question you'd be asking after you read chapter 21, verse 19. If you look at that again. This is the third of the four victories over the giants there. And it says, there was war with the Philistines in Gob again. And Elhanan, the son of Jareorgim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Uh, but you know that 1 Samuel 17 talks about how David struck down Goliath, not Elhanan. And it's not as though it was some minor detail in the David story. I mean, it was an important moment in the life of David, right? Samuel had anointed David king. David exercised this great faith, meeting this giant of a Philistine. It then leads to this, the covenant with Jonathan immediately after that. It's a big deal, which is why there's an awful lot written about this question. And there's, again, a range of possibilities that are debated. But the one I go with is the one that's alluded to in the footnote that you have there in the Black ESV Bibles, if you're looking at that one, I think it's there. You see there a note at the end of verse 19, which in tiny print then says, if you look at it, contrast 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5, which may preserve the original reading. Okay, you say so what does 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5 say? If you want to look at it with your own eyes, turn to the right, go past Kings, come to Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. Five, if you want to see it, what it says is, and there was again war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lachmi, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So what I'm suggesting and what the editors of the ESV are suggesting is that when we're dealing, what we're dealing with here is an issue of textual criticism. Because 2 Samuel 21 verse 19 and 1 Chronicles 20 verse 5 are obviously about the same event, and yet one has Elhanan killing Goliath and one has Elhanan killing Lachmi, the brother of Goliath, essentially the issue is that the ESV in 2 Samuel is following the Hebrew text that we have. But what many scholars think is that the original Hebrew of 2 Samuel 21 would have been what is still found in 1 Chronicles 20. 
meaning that there were likely errors made in the transmission of the Samuel text at this exact point. And I'll spare you all the detail. But if you're willing to look again at verse 19 of 2 Samuel 21, you can actually see at least a piece of this. There are good reasons to think that Jare Oragim, right, that oddly hyphenated name of Elhanan's father in 2 Samuel 21, that that really should just be Jair, as it is in 1 Chronicles 20. Because that strange added piece to the name, that hyphen and then the word Oragim there, that's a Hebrew word that actually is the same word that's translated at the end of the verse as weavers, as in the, the, the spear like a weaver's beam. The word is oragim. So that what seems to have happened is that the Hebrew word was copied twice by accident at the end of two different lines there in 2 Samuel 21. It was then attached to the name of Elhanan's father. And what the ESV does is it just puts in English letters to sound out the Hebrew word there in that oddly hyphenated name. And Jare and Jadir are not very different in the Hebrew, and so the thought is really it should be that name. There's other things too. The Hebrew that's behind Bethlehemite in 2 Samuel 21 is Beth Halachmi, which is pretty close to Ethlachmi in 2 Chronicles 20, where you find it to be the name of Goliath's brother, Lachmi. So you see the kind of thing that's happening here. And I take a moment on it, not because this is the, the great devotional point you were hoping for today, <laughs> but I, I take a moment on it because I think it's important because it is a window into the field of textual criticism, which is a hugely important area of biblical study. And you and I all owe a huge debt to generations of text critics who worked with the biblical manuscripts to give us a textual foundation for translation that's overwhelmingly accurate. And even the fact that they decided to preserve a translation of a, of a Hebrew text that they figure may not be quite the right one is a testimony to how faithfully they're working here. We don't usually think about this, but the Lord used all those folks and kind of like he used all these warriors that we know nothing else about. It's a moment to recognize that perhaps, though I think perhaps more obviously and importantly, it matters to talk about this because I don't think you have to say that the two accounts of Goliath's death in Samuel actually contradict one another, which is important. That there are good explanations for what you see there in the text. I'll leave it. At that. I don't know. Question number three, though this one may not be, or you don't think it seems as important, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Just how many mighty men were there exactly? That's my third question, obviously coming from 2 Samuel 23. Here again, lots of suggestions are made. You see something of the challenge. The list of David's mighty men begins formally there in verse 8 with these are the names of and then it ends with the total number in verse 39, 37 in all, it says. <laughs> the list is divided into two groups. In, in verses 8 to 12 of chapter 23, you read about the three, they're called. You've never heard about any of them before, but they're, they're named here. 
And there are lots more textual issues to deal with, but it's generally understood that these three were the elite of David's warriors. And so you read about their accomplishments. But then the tricky thing is that beginning in verse 13 of chapter 23, you start to read about the 30. You get a story in verses 13 to 17 that involves what the ESV describes as three of the 30 chief men. We don't know which three. Some translations even suggest they're actually not part of the 30 and they're, and they're, they're different, but we'll go with the ESV there. And then in verses 18 to the end of the chapter, you get this list, right? That begins with Abishai and ends, interestingly enough, with Uriah the Hittite. Only as I count them, and don't you count them right now or you won't listen to what I'm saying. As I count them, there are 34 names listed, beginning with verse 18 with Abishai. Although, even then it's tricky because in verse 32, you see it says the sons of Jashon. So how many are we supposed to count there? I don't know. So you see it's a bit fuzzy, exactly how you come to the total of 37 at the end. But there are ways to do it. The way I do it is that I'm going to say there's 34 names in the list, starting with Abishai, just counting the sons of Jashon as one. And then to 34, you can add the three that are listed in verses 8 to 12, and there you are with 37. But then why are they called the 30? Right? <laughs> to which probably the best answer is that this was a group of 30 mighty men who had formed around David pretty early on because the incident that we read about here in verses 13 to 17 is said to happen when David was in the cave of Adullam. I don't know if that rings any bells for you, but David was in the cave of Adullam back in 1 Samuel 22 and probably at other times as well. But what's suggested here is that these chief men begin to gather around David pretty early, even before David was king yet. He's still fleeing from Saul then, and so from early on, he had the 30 with him. Only over time, some of them died, and they probably were replaced. I mean, you see in verse 24, the name Asahel, the brother of Joab. Well, you look that up and you find out, yeah, Asahel was killed by Abner back in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. So... Likely members were replaced when they died, so they're called the 30, even though there's more than 30 names here. And then just one last footnote before we shift gears. One other footnote about the list. Some scholars point out, and I think it's helpful, that many of the names in this list seem to be men from Judah, as best we can tell. Some of the place names we recognize, not all of them, most of these names we never see anywhere else, but it seems to be that most of them are from Judah, which is David's tribe, which then would go along with the suggestion that this was a group that formed really early on around David. And then later as you go, you get more from other areas added and even eventually Uriah the Hittite. And if you look at the list in Chronicles, it's got many more names than this in it. Okay. Those are a few questions which may or may not have been of great interest to you. But they did get us to look at the text a bit and just examine it, think about what we're seeing. So now I think it will help, having done that, for me to move into section two of the sermon, which is the point that I want to ask, 
Why are these here? What is the point of these passages? And to get at that, I said it earlier, I want to consider what they have to say to us, perhaps about David, first of all, about the Lord, secondly, and then finally about the kingdom. And sometimes those three things just obviously overlap, but I'll try to say something separately about all three as we move into this part of the sermon. First of all, then, what do we learn here about David? I mean, if you're just joining us this morning, we've been in Samuel for a long time. <laughs> We're now at the end. We've already seen how the author of Samuel gives David himself the last words, if you will, by placing his psalm and prophecy right in the heart of the conclusion in chapters 22 and 23. So what are these texts that are framing that center section communicating to us about David? And the thing that strikes me from these texts primarily is that David isn't the hero. Right? Or at least David isn't the only hero. That term mighty men in verse 8 of chapter 23, it means exactly what you think it means. One Hebrew dictionary says, a particularly strong or mighty person who carries out, can carry out, or has carried out great deeds and surpasses others in doing so. And it is a term that's applied to David himself elsewhere in Samuel. In fact, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18, where Samuel had just anointed David. And then you read about how Saul's servants say that they'll bring someone who they know is skillful in playing the liar to come to Saul. Remember that moment? And in verse 18 of 1 Samuel 16, this is before Goliath, one of the young men says, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing a man of valor, the ESV says, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. And the Hebrew there behind man of valor, it's the same word. It's in the singular there, and it's in the plural in our text where it's translated as mighty men. David was a mighty man. But the point being made here at the end of Samuel is that David sure wasn't the only mighty man. In fact, David wasn't always that mighty. Remarkable, isn't it? The way chapter 21 begins. Look at verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel and David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. And look at this. And David grew weary. In fact, David was about to die. Verse 16, Ishbi Ben-Ob was armed with a new sword and he thought to kill David, right? But Abishai, who's also named among the 30 in chapter 23, Abishai came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, David, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. You hear that? You. <laughs> you quench it because you try to do everything, David. You can't do it all. And maybe David's getting old when this happened, but I'm not sure about that because we don't know when any of these battles take place exactly in the time of David's reign. It was not necessarily late I think the point is David wasn't invincible. 
that David needed the Lord's providential protection, which means he needed the help of his fellow warriors whom the Lord used to protect him. And that, I mean, that may just seem to you like a no big deal point to make, but in the context of the literature of the ancient Near East, that's a big deal. This is not a picture of a self-sufficient, all-powerful Near Eastern potentate like you get in other extant literature from the ancient Near East. This is someone whose frailty and vulnerability is readily apparent and pointed out. That's worth thinking about. Not that David isn't important, right? His men understood that God's people could hardly afford to lose him. But look at the reason. Look at what they say there again. The reason they can't afford to lose David is because of the promise of God. You see, they call him the lamp of Israel. But that language isn't random. David himself in chapter 22, verse 29 in, in his psalm of thanksgiving, David calls the Lord his lamp so that David's light is probably understood as the embodiment of God's light, you see? And maybe as readers of Samuel, the reference might take us all the way back to the dark days with which these books began, where in 1 Samuel 3, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, if, if any of you can remember this. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, the text said. And, and you may remember from chapter 2 of 1 Samuel just how bad things were in the religious center of Israel. And Eli couldn't see much, literally and spiritually. And there's Samuel in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And 1 Samuel 3 verse 3 says the lamp of God had not yet gone out. You hear that? The lamp of God had not yet gone out. That meant more than the words said themselves, I think. It meant the Lord had not abandoned his people. Samuel would then be the one to put the history of the kingdom into motion. And now here's the king and he's the lamp. But not by his own mightiness, right? He's weary. It's the Lord's doing. The Lord preserves and delivers David. And David sings about that, as we saw. These men around David are a big part of how the Lord does that. David knows it. David's not the hero, or not the only hero in Samuel. And on the subject of David's character, the author of these texts now, again, gives us here towards the end a nuanced picture of David, doesn't he? Just consider, if you would, that episode that's in chapter 23, that story in verses 13 to 17. I don't know what to make of every last detail of it, but the account's pretty clear. David's in the cave. This is probably early on. He's reminiscing of Childhood days or something. And he says longingly, verse 15 says, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. That's his hometown. He liked how the water tasted in the well of his hometown. Hearing it then, three of David's men decide to go get it for him. 
Only that means they had to fight Philistines who were in Bethlehem at the time, right? Verse 16 makes that clear. They had to break through the Philistines. And it wasn't next door. Adulam to Bethlehem is 15 miles or more. So they go and they get it and they, they bring it back to David. And then David pours it out to the Lord, it says. And he says in verse 17, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Why preserve this episode here? Well, for one thing, it shows us just how much David's men loved him, especially in the early days. They knew the risks, but to them it was worth it just to satisfy David's desires. They knew David wasn't giving them a command when he said this thing about the water in the well of Bethlehem, but they'd do anything for him. It was profound devotion that David, I think, rightly recognizes was too much. David rightly sees that his own pleasure wasn't worth the lives of his men. That's what I think is the point there from this early story of David. David respected his men. He honored his men. They didn't exist to satisfy his every whim as king. It's almost as if David's response here is to say that this, sac this kind of sacrifice or potential sacrifice, such devotion and love and sacrifice, that belongs only to the Lord which is the proper thing for the covenant king of Israel to say, right? And to show his men. I mean, yes, David's men can, they do die as they fight under David on behalf of the Lord at many points in the books of Samuel in this time in history of Israel, but they can't die for this. So that on the one hand, I mean, there's David in this early story Rightly, I think, pointing his men to the Lord as the focus of their ultimate devotion. That's how I read that story. He's not willing to take lightly the lives of his mighty men who are serving with him, is he? And then you come to that last verse of chapter 23, and who's the last name on the list of the chief men of David? Uriah the Hittite. the man David has slaughtered as a consequence and a cover-up of his own sexual longing, right? His desire. Now, it's nuanced what the narrator's doing for us here. It's no accident. It is no accident that Uriah's name is left there at the very end of the list. Because you're supposed to land on it, <laughs> kind of like a thud at the end. I mean, here were men willing to sacrifice their lives for David, and David ends up killing one of them. The author of Samuel hasn't forgotten all that we've seen in these books. We've seen the greatness of David. We've seen the wickedness of David. David hasn't forgotten this either. The point is not now to rehash all of that. It's not to condemn David all over again. We saw two weeks ago the remarkable truth that God delighted in David, that God forgave David's sin for which David sings in joy. History is made by the grace of God, brothers and sisters. Because history is full of the sin and failures of human beings, even when those human beings are fulfilling God's purposes. I mean, that seems like kind of the, the point. 
So that what we see here once again is what we've been seeing for the last several weeks. It's not David we're waiting for. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate final king of whom David prophesies in his last words that we considered last week. The one who rules justly, who rules in the fear of God. David's not the hero here. The Lord is. So the sin of David leads us on to the grace of God. That's that's what I'm seeing in these sections. Now, the time's gone. Let me just make these final points very quickly. What do we learn about the Lord in these texts? It won't take anything like the amount of time. We learn more than just this, but let me put it this way. We learn that the Lord accomplishes his will and that he uses untold numbers of kingdom servants to do it. And you notice this, right? Those notes, there's a couple notes that the author gives us in chapter 23, verses 10 and 12. You hear about these feats of the three in verses 8 to 12. And after recording how Eleazar rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword, what does it say in verse 10? It says, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And then after Shammah stood alone in the plot of lentils and defended it against the Philistines single-handedly, how does verse 12 end? And the Lord worked a great victory. This is how the Lord works, brothers and sisters. He uses people, sometimes mighty people. We can't dismiss the great effort, the courage, the strength that's here. But in the final analysis, these weren't just feats of human strength or ingenuity and courage. They were saving acts of God. The Lord gave the might and skill and daring by which these were accomplished. Maybe he even acted in other ways to ensure that the enemies of David and David's kingdom are defeated. The point is that these human accomplishments were more than that. The greatness, the importance of what happened through these men really lies in what the Lord was doing, you see. I like what one author says, the true measure of all human achievements is how they relate to what God is doing. So much of the time, humans accomplish what they think are great things in defiance of God. They are like builders of the Tower of Babel. Only when our achievements and our activities serve the kingdom of God do they have any lasting value. And you know something? I guess it might have been that serving the kingdom in this context of this chapter meant being a mighty warrior with David. But that's sure not the only example we have in the Bible. I mean, you come to the end of several of Paul's letters in the New Testament and what you find there are not lists of military elite you find lists of kingdom servants. They're not always people we know much about, but the Lord knows them. Take Romans 16, chapter 16, verse 3. Paul says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers who risked their necks for my life. Who knows what the particulars were? Or how about verse 6 of Romans 16? Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Or verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. Also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. I mean, these are kingdom servants. Or how about Colossians 4 verses 12 and 13? I love this one. 
Colossians 4, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. I mean, working hard, struggling in prayer, risking their necks, being a mother to those who need it, we're a long way from the mighty men of Samuel in one sense. But in another way, the point seems to be the same. Give recognition to such people, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18. That's what the Bible does time and time again. Because this is how the Lord works. He uses kingdom servants. Only that brings me to the last thing I'll say this morning, and that has to do with the kingdom. And I wanted to, to extend that point and dwell on those New Testament lists for a moment there, because I do think it helps us to see that the picture we get here in Samuel of the strength of David's kingdom, it isn't the end goal. And the text itself doesn't suggest anything like this, so this is just purely my own response to the text at this point, but I don't know if you feel with me or not that somehow today's texts in Samuel are fascinating but deeply unsatisfying. I mean, it's all so violent, isn't it? Joshebashabeth wielded his spear against 800. Eliezer struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary. Abishai wielded his spear against 300 and killed them. Benaiah struck down two aerials of Moab, whatever those are, we have no idea, and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. I mean, violent. And I get it. David and his kingdom were constantly under threat from ferocious enemies. The Lord uses these mighty men in that circumstance. I can appreciate that it was better for David and his kingdom that the Philistines were defeated rather than victorious. But I can't quite get away from the fact that David's mighty men are celebrated here because their strength and ability in overcoming violence is with violence, right? which, if I may, on the reading of the whole of the Bible, suggests to me that once again here at the end of Samuel, we realize this isn't the kingdom we're waiting for. This wasn't a kingdom of peace. It was perhaps what it had to be. And the Lord was at work. But it's far short of God's ultimate promise to David and to David's people in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 and 11 that we've read so many times, where it says that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as, violently, as formerly. And I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord promises. And so as we come to the very end of Samuel, let's remember that long after David, the prophets would insist that that promise stands firm. That a king would come, 
whose kingdom would eventually surpass David's. In fact, it would be everything David's kingdom failed or just never could be. For to us a child is born, Isaiah says. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, the angel said, who is Christ the Lord. And what does the heavenly host declare? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.